This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Welcome to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I am joined, I'm delighted to say, by Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, uh, last time we spoke, and actually we had to talk about um, Ukraine, and we still, we still do, but where are we going to begin today? Well, I, I think we're going to return to uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, um, uh, but we're going to do it very much, dare I say it, uh, from the angle of business school. I mean, we all know now, uh, as the veil is lifted, we know about the horror of what has got on. Uh, we see what the Russians have been up to. Uh, we've seen um, the mass killing of civilians, the shelling, the rapes, um, all the murder, and quite frankly, by modern standards, all the war crimes. Mm. My reaction to that is none of this should surprise us because this is what the Russian army has done for centuries. You know, you go back to Peter the Great, um, and I'm afraid this is often the story. Um, in the modern Russian army, uh, the lower ranks are often bullied and savagely they're humiliated, they're not treated well. And if you treat people badly and um, you send them into uh, fairly immoral and futile wars, you know, what can you expect but the sort of mayhem that you're seeing? Mm. But what I want to do is just look and link the huge failure of Russia so far in this campaign and link it to some of the themes that we talk about in business schools. And one of the things that we talk about is the sort of management tools that were developed um, at the beginning of the 20th century. In those days, if you were running an enterprise or indeed running a government, even if it was a democratic state, mm. you tended to be fairly autocratic. You tended to be fairly top down. We all remember, don't we, Simon, all those lessons of how those people, those British politicians in 1930s, and particularly in the 40s, would talk about uh, healthcare in terms of the gentleman in Whitehall knows best. Well, that phrase, the idea that somehow someone in London uh, in the civil service or in the ministry can know best, this lifts the veil on the old management press practices of the of the early 20th century very autocratic very top down not transparent often the people running something they had a very similar ideology or education or background it, that was very much the world of the oxbridge set um, and systems be it health systems or social security or welfare or the military they were managed very much with knowledge from the inside and then that knowledge and that institution did things to the world on the outside. Yeah. Um, these systems tended to be rather closed and 
often people in them suffered from groupthink. And that I think became clear to all of us um, old enough to remember in the 60s and 70s that often there were huge unintended consequences, there were institutional failures, budgetary errors, things went wrong. Well, one of the problems that Russia has is it is still very much a 20th century or mid 20th century state. Uh, it has mid 20th century forms of government and it has rather outdated values. So of course, Vladimir Putin and his cohort in the Kremlin, they're very autocratic. They think in a very top-down way. They lack transparency. They have to lack transparency because actually they're fairly corrupt. Mm. Um, and they manage, they think of the world as if they're going to do things to the world. So they manage from the inside out. Now, if you're a modern Western manager, if you're at a Western business school, then what you learn uh, is that this way of working is not the future. If anything, it's quite the reverse. You don't want to be autocratic. You want to be empowering. You want to empower not only those around you and above you, but also those below you. You want to harness their skills and unleash their potential. You don't want to be top down. You actually want to be bottom up. You want to understand what ordinary people mm think um, what customers think and um, you think of change as an iterative process you want transparency you want the rule of law you don't want corruption and you don't want to manage from the inside out you want to understand the world beyond your boundaries beyond your borders if you will and then take from it the best so you almost want to manage from the outside in and you don't want to be closed or to suffer from groupthink you want in empowering people and unleashing potential and working bottom up and being transparent, you want to understand the world fairly objectively. And the real irony, I think, of the behavior of the Russians, the Russian military, their failure, um, the, the, the sort of watching Putin in, in ever decreasing circles of his own lies, of him not being able to trust his own intelligence machine. Well, this is the result of living in the 21st century in a world of millions to millions of communications and the social media, where he's using, if you will, an old management program, that quite frankly familiar in the 1920s and beyond, but we live in a different world now. Mm. So the Ukrainian government and the Western have been very open, very truthful. Um, they believe that the truth is often a very powerful weapon. Um, fairly law-abiding, you know, um, and, and an empowering of people. So what you have here is not just a clash of two countries or, 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 or two worldviews, but you actually have a clash of values, of statecraft, and of governance, and their underlying institutional architecture. One understands that among the training uh, that would given to uh, Ukrainian troops by the British army was the ability for troops on the ground to essentially to think for themselves and not to have to wait to to actually ask for permission going up the line in an you know clearly in a battlefield quite hard to do that sometimes if you've got communications at all um I don't know whether you you would agree with that whether that seems to be the case it is and um uh, to be fair this was something that was pioneered um it actually, ironically, in the 1930s by the German army, the German army didn't just have 
a group of officers who knew what the battle plan was, mm. but often the NCOs did. And, and as people were knocked out, high ups were knocked down. Well, the sort of the plan was cascaded down through the ranks so that people knew. And of course, this is the way that special forces work. Special forces are actually very, very empowering. They're very collaborative. If you have an SAS troop of four people, um, the officer will often actually discuss the plans and their ideas with the NCO and uh, uh, and, and and the two uh, um, uh, privates um, to actually get their perspective. The point being, there's a recognition that no one has a monopoly on wisdom and that mm. everyone might have insights that might just win the day. So, of course, modern the modern British Army and modern NATO force is all about um, empowering people, not only making them confident, giving them the best training, but also making them agile in their decision making, um, not just waiting for a brigadier or a general or some high up um, to, to, to issue another command, because often battles move very quickly and you need very agile um, you know, decision making on the front line. Mm-hmm. Um- and do, can we even speculate about what might happen in, in Russia, how this might end? Well, uh, for me... Uh, uh, so what it means for the, you know, the Russian state and the Russian people. Yeah. Well, well, well for me, um, and you know, I'm wearing the hat here of, of being a professor of business and political, political economy, the, the, the real irony of this is that under Putin's leadership, Russia has got itself into a position where... I would say it's now damned if it does and it damned if it doesn't. So if it doesn't change, if it carries on with this top-down, corrupt, autocratic, um, closed-minded, groupthink, you know, illiberal system, well, you know, things are just going to get worse. And they're probably going to get worse, not the extraordinary people, but also the leadership. Mm. Um, I mean, there are lots of people speculating that uh, probably quite wisely that Putin just hasn't been given the right information by his own intelligence services, many of whom are probably too afraid of him. Um, and so he, he, he makes his plans, he issues orders, but do they relate to reality? Probably not. So the system he's helped to co-create and that he's locked into is one that is built on a pack of lies and he's got a system that has an inability to tell him ground truth. Yes, yes that keeps yeah. reminding me of that the late scenes in Downfall, that extraordinary picture about Hitler in the bunker. Exactly. And then on the other side, of course, well, if he becomes less autocratic and more empowering and less top-down and listens to ordinary people's um, opinions and demands, and he becomes more transparent and tries to stamp out the corruption, the corruption well, guess what? His regime is probably not sustainable. So he is literally caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. Um, and he is in the medium and long term, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Um, so it's not good news. Of course, what Russia needs is some truth telling. Uh, it needs the veil lifted on this unreality, on this fake news. Um, and it needs to get with the 21st century. Um, but I'm not holding my breath anytime soon for that to happen. Okay, thank you um, very much indeed. Perhaps it's time for us to hold our breath just for a moment or two. We'll be back very soon.
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Chair Radio in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, where are we going now? Well, I said some months ago that um, I didn't want to discuss COVID again, and for a long time that's held true. However, I think now actually is a good time to take stock and, and to revisit the subject. The first thing I'll say is that um, I've had the privilege of, of course, of being married to uh, uh, an infection control nurse um, and, and someone who from day one, uh, and I mean back in early March uh, 2020, very accurately told me how things were going to pan out. And for me, it has just sort of uh, impressed me just how, you know, how much expertise uh, can, 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 can make the future knowable and intelligible to human reason. So back then she said, there are three things about this pandemic. She said, number one, uh, phase uh, wave. there will be a wave two, um, and it will be worse, and she was right. Two, she said, Britain will probably be at the forefront of developing a vaccine. And she actually said that she thought uh, Oxford University would be involved, um, and that was accurate. And then she said, number three, a lot will depend um, on uh, treatment and us managing uh, the pandemic and it becoming endemic in the longer term. Well, she was right on all three counts. Very early on, of course, people were making judgments. And I remember at the end of wave one, people saying, oh, by international comparator, Britain hasn't done that well. My wife's take always was um, that uh, it will not be until 2022 that we will be able to assess how different countries and and different governments uh, did. And um, uh, being me, I was a little bit skeptical early on. I remember getting to the end of 2020 thinking that there wouldn't necessarily be a wave two. Boy, was I wrong. And I remember thinking that, uh, along with lots of people in the House of Commons, um, that yes, there could be inquiries into how the government did and answers should be given quickly. Well, I, I think that that's wrong. There's a very, very good article by Jeremy Warner in The Telegraph uh, very recently, pointing out uh, not only how, in a comparative sense, Britain has indeed done fairly well, um, but how China um, is uh, getting into hot water again with COVID, that there are lots of lockdowns, um, that it's spreading rapidly, and that the vaccines that they use uh, don't have a high degree of efficacy. They're not that effective. We know um, now that actually Sputnik, the Russian vaccine, again, has not been that effective. And whilst our vaccines have been effective, and I think we can expect um, to, to have our jabs rather like we have flu jabs on, on a fairly regular mm. basis, um, 
for those people who thought um, that uh, that you didn't really need lockdowns, that you didn't really need um, vaccines, that this would all blow over, and there were quite a few, particularly on the libertarian right. Well, just look at the economic woes that China is starting to suffer, right in its and it's not only its uh, productive heartlands, but also in, um, in, 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 in its great centres for its financial and service sectors. And where that downturn goes for China, as COVID continues to rage, and indeed where it goes for the global economy, is too early to tell. But there's serious issues here. And issues again, just to bore everyone completely blind, issues again that relate to the nature of your values, your governance, and your statecraft. Mm. China, again, is now suffering from being an autocratic, top-down system that lacks transparency and, quite frankly, in wave one and wave two, thought that they were uh, uh, doing the best things, that they were winning, um, that they were going to produce the best vaccines. And there was an awful lot of propaganda not necessarily as much ground truth as there should have been, and now they're reaping the world mm. of that. Well, I remember early on, I mean, everybody seemed to be massively impressed by the speed with which they built their hospitals to cope with the COVID patients. Gosh, you know, we never be able to do that over here. Um, well, it seems totally unimportant now in retrospect. Um, but before the invasion of Ukraine, of course, we were you know, talking about how Western governments and companies were thinking of ways of becoming less reliant on China. But we've got the extraordinary situation now that we haven't decoupled from China. If China suffers from COVID, then the rest of the world suffers. You know, we never even sorted out the supply lines um, uh, from the last couple of years. And now we've got people trying to get us to decouple from Russia as well. I mean, th these are massive sea changes. In the same way as you say, we wouldn't be able for some long time to work out what the effects of COVID have been. I mean, we're not going to know for some considerable time what the effects of us trying to be less reliant on these two giant totalitarian regimes is going to be. I mean, I agree. And I don't just think this is going to have huge ramifications for the obvious areas, you know, be it um, well, manufacturing with China or energy with Russia. But the geopolitics of this are, are extraordinary as well. Um, um, uh, you know, if I was sitting in the Kremlin today and I'm stuck between damned if I do, damned if I don't, mm. then there will be questions as to whether the Russian Federation is itself sustainable in the long term. What will be the actual relationship between Russia and China? I would imagine lots of people in Beijing are quite happy at... Uh, a Russia that isn't doing that well because they can think of Russia in the future as sort of a, a, a low rent extraction mm. type for, for energy and all the rest of it. Um, but where this goes for Africa, who are, let's be clear, heavily reliant on that breadbasket of Europe, an awful lot of food exports from Ukraine, huge ramifications there. Um, what impact will this have on Latin America? Um, lots of the hard left and, and indeed elements of the hard right in Latin America have become increasingly the playthings of Russia in recent years. Uh, where will Venezuela go if um, Russia is not so involved? I mean, there were extraordinary moves recently 
by the United States to re-engage with Venezuela. And maybe we discussed Venezuela. it on this program. We discussed yes. it. But the point is that we, we are living through extraordinary days and the days that will last and echo in our history books. You know, we talk, we talk now about the oil crisis of 1973 or the IMF loan of 1976, or we talk about, I know, the Falklands War. In comparison to what could potentially be afoot at the moment, then, then, then you know, we're living through a very momentous period. And I think it's very difficult to predict how this will play out, but it is going to have a huge impact right across diplomacy, geopolitics, through political economy, right through to what we buy and the price of things in our petrol stations and in our shops. Tim, uh, thank you. We are going to change topics now. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I am in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what's our final topic? So our final topic is Channel 4 um, and the question to privatise or not to privatise. Um, Channel 4 um, was, people forget this now, but Channel 4 came about um, in the early years of uh, of 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 the of the Thatcher years in in the early early to mid eighties, um, and of course it represented a momentous um, upheaval and change for British terrestrial television because for years we'd had three channels, and here was the fourth channel, and the fourth channel was tasked by Act of Parliament to provide um, a diverse range of opinions. I think. By the early 80s, lots of people felt, and I think this was felt right across the left and the right, that the old, rather stultifying and consensual views expressed by, you know, the balanced approaches of the BBC and ITV, they, that, that was all very worthy and good, but that we needed something slightly more punk, slightly more diverse and slightly more disruptive and channel four was tasked to do that and i would say that through the mid 80s late 80s and throughout the 1990s it delivered that remit really really well i remember being so excited by channel four i was almost addicted to channel four um for 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 about a decade and a half purely because of the the array of opinions that, mm. that, that came before you. Um, there were there were companies like Diverse. Well, there were there were, there were documentary series like um, Current Affairs, uh, things like Diverse Reports. Um, you didn't know if they were going to be coming from the authoritarian right, the libertarian left, pro porn, anti porn, pro drug legalization, anti. You know, you had no idea. So it, it was not only a feast for the eyes, but it was a roller coaster ride for the brain. There were, if you remember, I think there were programs on Channel 4, like After Dark. Um, yes, yes. Again, they would have an extraordinary array of opinion form on late on a Saturday night, usually fueled by lots of booze, and people really having great discussions and huge, um, powerful sort of arguments. It was really exciting, but something went wrong um, I would say in the early noughties, and I'm not going to blame New Labour for this, I, I don't know what happened, but Channel 4 became 
more establishment and it became very predictable and channel four news became predictably sort of center left and there were certain programs that became predictably center right and quite frankly it became a yawn well here we are today and the left and the guardian want it to remain um with very much a, a public service remit that 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 remit of of of, of disruption and diversity and the right wing of the Conservative Party want it privatised and they think that it should be more competitive and somehow, and I think they've got this slightly wrong, but it should be competing with Netflix. Well, I don't think Channel 4 was ever there. To <laughs> no, no, it seems Whatever. a very odd idea. But, but I think I'm, again, in the soggy middle. I would like either a Channel 4 that goes back to a public service remit of being disruptive and almost boxing you around the ears and Mm. doing it properly, being unpredictable, or if it is privatised, then I think that it should be regulated in such a way that it does not become just a Netflix or another sort of, um, you know, uh, Hollywood you know, um, or global network, but that it goes for really, really high quality, highbrow, insightful and interesting stuff, which it has long veered away from. So um, I'm not being left or right wing on this, Mm. um, um, but there is a side of me and I'm going to confess my best. I wish wish Channel 4 could... in my terms, could go back to being really good. Well, short of short of Professor Tim Evans actually taking over at the head of Channel Four, how on earth does central government, whether it, it keeps it as it is or, or privatises it, how on earth does they actually determine the character of a TV station? Well, the the, the statutory bodies, including the government and the regulators, are able to give frameworks and guidance, guidelines, um, by which channels can be held to account. This is the norm, uh, for example, for public service broadcasting the world over. Um, I suppose for me, the, if I was one of, you know, part of that statutory network, for me, the question would be, what does really diverse and disruptive telly look like today? Um, and in an increasingly changed media landscape. I mean, we've got GB News, which is very much a sort of centre-right channel. It's sort of a British Fox News. And I have to say, I found it generally disappointing. I find it too American, too shouty, too biased. I get angry with it in exactly the same way that I got angry until recently with Channel 4 News. I just find it predictably biased for one audience or another. Mm. They, they cater to a niche. They're not raising people's gaze. They're not inspiring. And they're not putting forward interesting views that make you think, yeah, I've never thought of it like that before. So uh, the question has to be, if Channel 4 is going to remain you know, some part of the government, you know, part of the government um, framework and and part of the public sector in some way, even be at arm's length, is there a remit that it can be given to be more genuinely disruptive and less predictable? Well, presumably it has not kept to its original remit. So why were those, the bodies in charge of overseeing Channel 4 not 
holding it to account. And, and that, for me, is the big question of all. You know, it's why I say what went wrong in the early noughties. Mm. Why was Channel 4 so good and actually popular with huge numbers of people? But then it sort of became, bizarrely, it became A, more commercial, B, more left-wing, and C, a lot more predictable. Yes, it was the unpredictability that was fun in the beginning. And that was for fun. You know, you yeah. had no idea. I remember, you know, watching programmes in the late 80s. Uh, it all comes to me, you know, Ben Elton would be on one minute, and then the Professor Ken Minogue was doing a series on the history of classical liberalism for six weeks, for goodness sake. You know, this was... This you you was, must have thought you were in heaven. Well, it, you know, I mean, OK, there was an awful lot about Adam Smith and political economy, yes. so I'm confessing my bias, but... Um, it was the lack of predictability. It was. It was like. I tell you what. It was like. It was like going into a Woolworths pick and mix. There were so <laughs> many different flavors, and there were sort of toffee eclairs and strawberry whips and yes. all this. You know that you just. It was a feast <clears throat> for the senses. Then it became so predictable, and I just wish that that Channel Four could be rebranded re the disruptive channel for thinkers or something. You know. And that boxed everyone around the ears a bit from wherever they came from. <laughs> Tim, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Professor Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, thank you very much indeed. I hope Tim will be back with us again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. Mm -hmm.